Hello, and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast, the show that brings you the latest from the frontiers of life science, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor, Tristan Free, and in this podcast, I'll explore the latest developments from across the life sciences, speaking to leaders in their field and people who can provide new perspectives on established topics, while examining how we can advance in the most ethical and progressive ways. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Weiner, Executive Vice President and Director of the Vaccine and Immunotherapy Centre at the Wistar Institute, who is presenting at the AACR Annual Virtual Meeting 2 and is also heading up an ongoing vaccine trial into COVID-19. David and I are going to discuss synthetic DNA and DNA vaccines, their uses, challenges and how David is trying to use these vaccines to tackle COVID-19. So, David, please can you introduce us to the world of synthetic DNA and DNA vaccines. Thank you, Tristan. Um, the idea of DNA and uh, DNA vaccines is that we can use non-live um, information sequences encoded in DNA, a very stable molecule, usually delivered as plasmid, uh, directly into um, animals or human beings um, using sophisticated um delivery devices for local transfection and have that information then turned into message, which then converts in the cytoplasm into protein, designer proteins that can drive immune responses or actually produce biologics. Fantastic. And um, what were the first DNA vaccines that you developed and um, what did you use them to treat? So our early work was the first clinical trials of DNA vaccines were one of the groups that started the field of uh, nucleic acid uh, vaccines. And um, we advanced the first clinical trials. They were for HIV immune therapy and um, uh, cancer immunotherapy, as T cell lymphoma. And then we moved into normal, healthy people as well with the first um, approval. Uh, those vaccines um, were then... Uh, not as immune potent as we'd like, and after um, another decade of development, we get to where we are today, where uh, more recently we developed with Inovio, who we've been partnering with, who creates the facilitated delivery and also has advanced in production that are critical, and uh, other scientific advances. We have advanced a uh, collaborative team around Ebola, which moved into a uh, clinical study, a MERS, uh, vaccine, which is in um, phase two in Korea, and a uh, Zika, the first uh, Zika vaccine, which was the clinic, and now um, COVID-19 vaccine as part of a CEPI-funded partnership with uh, Anonovio and now much larger groups. In addition, we've worked on um, you know, therapy approaches in cancer for um, high-grade cervical neoplasia, for um, treatment of head and neck cancer, um, a glioblastoma trial with Harvard, um, and uh, treatments for AIM and VIN, among others. And what are some of the key steps in the design of these DNA vaccines, be that for um, for cancers or viruses? Well, the cancer, that's an important question. The cancer approaches are mostly built at trying to develop a platform that would produce reproducible T-cell responses particularly killer T cells inside human beings from the local, uh, mostly intramuscular-focused uh, delivery. And advances included 
um, novel plasma designs, uh, genetic engineering to code on RNA changes, um, enhanced leader sequences for production and targeting, uh, as well as uh, selective um, poly A track and other modifications that allow for high level production. And in addition, uh, major breakthroughs were new concentrated formulations and new delivery devices, which allow for delivery both intramuscularly as well as now very um, sophisticated delivery to the local skin, which is primarily the approach for infectious disease. And so through these combinations and others, the platform has become a much more reproducible platform using lower doses and generating much more consistent immunology um, in human beings. So you mentioned there about the head and neck cancers that you've um, tried to treat with, with these DNA vaccines. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about targeting those types of um, cancers? What, what genes are you perhaps targeting? What uh, proteins are you trying to produce to induce that T-cell response? Um, and uh, how are you targeting them to those head and neck cancers? That's an important area. We um, focus on the high-risk uh, genotypes for um head and neck cancer and cervical cancer, uh, which are HPV 16 and 18. And since we're really focused on driving CTLs, we chose two nuclear antigens, which can drive the cancer in HPV, that's E6 and E7. And so this is a four antigen cassette containing E6 and E7 that are ablated in their oncogenic function, designed for high efficiency expression and, and formulated for delivery. As, and um, combined uh, with uh, plasmid encoding IL-12 to further enhance TH1 immunity and drive CTL. And they are delivered um, intramuscularly um, and by the combination of E6 and E7 from HPV 16 and 18 uh, and plasma IL-12, we have observed in the clinic that, uh, and the study is led by Cheryl Agarwal at University of Pennsylvania, that about 90% of people who receive the vaccine surrounding their um, traditional therapy induced CD8 T cells, uh, which include palming of those CD8 T cells to their uh, tumor and those cold tumors uh, becoming hot. And I believe the paper that was reported uh, by Charles' group um, approximately a year ago showed about 90% response rate in those immune response rates in those trials. Um, so that was uh, that was an important study for us. Okay, and, and when you're working with these these vaccines, what are some of the, the limitations or challenges that you come across? Is it um, perhaps in the, the vesicle development for, for delivering the, um, the therapeutic? Is it designing that synthetic DNA? Um, or is it that sort of local application of the vaccines? Um, what, what areas give you the most trouble? So the, the DNA vaccines have a lot of advantages um, conceptually. They are non-live, non-replicating, non-spreading. And, and now with our focus on delivering them very locally, um, through these smart devices that monitor the energy and the and change the um, directionality of, of the current, providing enhanced trans, local transfection, um, we have a much more consistent platform for this kind of uh, delivery. Uh, and in addition, the DNA itself is quite temperature stable, so those are advantages as well. 
And because it's delivered locally and produced within the cell, uh, we've been able to show in, in our clinical trials induction of antibody responses and T cells. One of the other major changes has been the high concentrated formulation in local skin delivery. Um, and that has also shown a dose sparing effect that was recently published in uh, KCI Insight reporting on a HIV prototype vaccine that induced uh, strong antibodies in T cells in the clinical trial network of the HIV vaccine trials network, for example, and delivered that in a dose-bearing fashion and um, with consistency. So the major things we do focus on is the antigen design. So, um, there are now uh, computer programs that are used to predict the best um, features for the genetic changes that we want to include because we've done so much of this uh, with Anovio. And um, we also focus on the concentration and the dosing, uh, which is an important part, and really engineering the response against the target. What is the kind of response we need? So those are the things that you um, that you focus on. But what 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 are the what are the challenges that you come across, or um, are there perhaps any limitations of these of these vaccines um, that you that you've encountered so far? If I use the example of COVID, what we learned there was. We thought DNA was moving pretty fast because we moved into the clinic with a Zika vaccine in six and a half months. But now, of course, we see applications that want things much faster. So I think developing the tools and the reagents to study um, outbreak diseases in time and limiting, trying to limit the number of different kinds of studies one would normally do. Those are all kinds of challenges that I think are, are not just unique to the DNA platform, going to be to many other uh, platforms. I think um, we're going to learn more about that as we continue through this pandemic. Okay, so, so moving across to that um, COVID-19 study. So you've worked with MERS before, which is also a coronavirus. Um, are there any lessons that you learned whilst you were um, developing vaccines for, for that um, that virus that you think you can apply or you have applied to your um, your trial on COVID-19? So the MERS was a great experience. It's only a few years ago and then and we are in, um, that was an important trial for us. So for MERS, we did sort of uh, also tried to get in the outbreak. We were in, it took us 11 months, the program from starting the program to get into the clinic. And uh, we also did an original three-dose non-human primate um, challenge. We focused on several antigens and down selected a vaccine that targeted the spike antigen, which is, has a lot of similarity being a coronavirus to COVID-19, uh, SARS-CoV-2, which um, the spike protein has similarity, especially structural similarity. And so that experience and developing assays for neutralizing antibodies or working with groups, T-cells, antibody etc. Those were very informative as well. And we also had experience moving through non-human primate challenges where we previously reported uh, a three-dose vaccine was uh, protective uh, in uh, reported science translation medicine 2015. And then we um, have done additional trials where now two doses by skin were and I am more protective uh, also in uh, the non-human primate challenges which were 
submitting the publication now. And uh, moving into the clinic, uh, we were able to drive antibodies and T cell responses uh, uh, in both um, IM first approaches, and then we transitioned to ID, which um, that clinical trial is uh, and data will are being reported shortly. So those gave us a lot of background. And so when COVID-19 appeared, we knew the kind of construct we already wanted. We knew the kind of changes we might want to make. And, and, and of course, uh, Nobio already had developed programs for algorithms for uh, the sequence generation. And so it was we were very rapid in, in almost no time having constructs ordered uh, through that design process. And that, you know, really served us very well. We also knew what kind of assays we might want and what kind of reagents we might need. And, and so we, we were able to more than hit the ground running. In addition, MERS was important because it, it gave us funding from a group called CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. And um, CEPI helped uh, us expand the trials in Korea and uh, two, two uh, combination phase one, phase two trials. And so we had already been working with them, and CEPI was the group that funded the initial and several of the vaccine programs that we're now talking about. Certainly they were the first funder of the first three, which was uh, an OVO, uh, Wistar, uh, Moderna, NIH, and uh, University of Queensland, and GSK. And so we also had that system in place as well, and uh, for uh, which they announced funding in January, as you know. So, so we had a lot of the different pieces in place and uh, publications even on, on the development of uh, a MERS vaccine, including the clinical trial, first clinical trial results, and the original 90 primate results. So that was really a great uh, uh, lesson for us. And with regard to the, the current um, trial into, into SARS-CoV-2, um, the, I think the last news I saw was that it does produce an immune response in uh, and antibodies in mice and guinea pigs, and that the results from the human stages of the trial were potentially due out in June. What stage is it at at the moment? Has it progressed past those initial animal trials yet, or is the human human trial still in progress? So the human trial, uh, the original phase one, opened in April, um, 83 days from the initiation. That uh, initial trial announced it was being expanded at a, um, to include additional groups of people, um, including uh, people of uh, over 55, for example. And um, in addition, uh, SEPI announced additional funding of the program for expansion of a phase one, phase two into Korea, and that opened in June. And so that study uh, is uh, underway in, in Korea, um, and um, in addition, uh, Novio has announced that they're planning on moving to FCC this summer, so we should be hearing about that, and they are going to, as you mentioned, report initial, some initial data from the clinical trial. We've also shown um, non-human primate immunogenicity data as well, showing antibodies and, and T-cells and uh, the induction in, in different dose groups. So, so we have reported additional data and shown that those antibodies in the monkeys certainly um, uh, overlap and will continue as data comes out from different studies to be recording uh, what we find. 
So if you could ask for anything um, that would uh, dramatically help um, the the likelihood of this, this vaccine's success, so be it um, a new or more precise method of designing the vaccine, uh, designing the synthetic DNA or changing the delivery method or um, having a better understanding of the virus structure. Um, what, what would you ask for um, that could really help you um, make this a successful vaccine candidate? I think one of the important and amazing things that's been going on is how fast people are trying to generate data and how fast we're learning about the virus and the very interesting and somewhat surprising things we're learning. For example, that uh, many people get better with very weak antibody responses, that uh, there is a role, like there, there seems to be a role perhaps for T-cell responses, that um, neutralizing antibodies are associated with protection, what their ranges are, and that um, also that people who um, are in uh, higher virus loads actually generate higher antibody titers than people who control the virus sooner. So so all of these pieces of information give us a lot of clues that we could look at in the vaccine development and design and, and see what we're doing. I think um, what you're looking at is an unprecedented speed to clinic for uh, many of these approaches, as you see, and that is not traditional. Originally, when we first started talking about the idea of uh, using the clay approaches to DNA for vaccines, but these could be much faster than traditional approaches. But we can also see that a lot of the willpower is really changing because we're starting to, we've seen other approaches also start to advance pretty rapidly with first path vaccines. And so I think um, as far as now, I, I think what we have shown in this particular outbreak, which is the fourth uh, outbreak, is that you can produce DNA quickly. You can um, produce them in a manner that uh, is well tolerated, although we'll see the actual form report on this COVID um, extend period uh, in the near future. And um, But from the others, it's clear the safety profile was, was uh, very uh, strong. It's very well tolerated. And so um, we're, and we also showed in those studies uh, immunogenicity. And so in this case, as you continue to move forward, we're going to learn a lot more about how these platforms perform and how well they might impact in, in this rapid fashion of such an outbreak. And so I think as we continue to learn more and, and maybe consider uh, things that might change our thinking, those uh, are going to play important roles in the continued development of these vaccines. Where do you see the future of, um, of DNA vaccines and, and synthetic DNA in, um, in five years' time? Well, that's an aspirational question. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking that these nucleic approaches are getting a chance to show what they can do in infectious disease here. I think we have a lot of data we're starting to get in the cancer arena, and the ability of the platform to induce antibodies and CTLs is uh, important. I also, one of the other areas we've been publishing on quite a bit lately is the use of such a platform to actually deliver biologics like DNA encoded monoclonals, um, DNA encoded by specifics, which we, I talked about in the ACR presentation. And I think we're just scratching the surface of such approaches. And those approaches have a lot of um, conceptual advantages as well and, and production advantages. So I, I think we're just at the beginning, 
and we're going to learn a lot more. And uh, hopefully with some of the different applications, um, we'll start to see um, efficacy signals and, and it will continue to build on these early successes. And if I wanted to be really aspirational, I would say that the last 40 years or so have been the age of biologics. And uh, I'm going to say, um, if you want to be aspirational, you can consider um, the next um, 20 years is going to, they will likely find a place for the clay as well. Fantastic. Well, those are all of my questions. Um, thank you so much for joining me, David. Um, have you got any last points that you would like to make? I, I think that this outbreak shows how important it is for people to work together and, and for groups to uh, really learn from each other. And I, I think it's, a, it's one of the reassuring things in this very difficult time. So it's really a very, very important time for clients to come together and, and help everything we can do to move us away from this particular outbreak. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast, David. Um, it was lovely having you on and it was really, really interesting to hear um, sort of some of the, the history of DNA vaccines, um, their previous applications and their successes in, um, in coronaviruses. And that's quite encouraging to hear for your, your current study. Um, so thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you again. And thank you to those at home or at work that are listening to this podcast. I hope that wherever you are, you are safe and well. And if you would like to hear more of our podcasts, you can find them in the podcast section of our website at www.biotechniques.com. Join us next time for the next edition of the Talking Techniques podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Goodbye.